I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Architecture can be seen as the canvas of society, evoking serenity at home, inviting collaboration in the office, promoting a learning environment in schools, or displaying the cleanliness of a restaurant. Even in television and film, it frames the elegance of cars and highlights the success of the star. Yet, it's estimated that architects design or impact less than 5% of buildings globally. Why is that? This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius, and you are listening to Spaces Podcast. Thank you for coming back, everybody. Uh, Jason and Michelle will be sitting out the next few episodes. We're doing a, a special mini-series, and we'll have a few guests join me to kind of help round out this, this conversation, but we'll get to that later. In this conversation, we're going to talk about design theory Relevance of architecture today, technology, small firms, large firms, the future of architecture as a developer architect, creators, and the variety of deliverables that we can utilize to solve problems. Oh, and we'll try to define what exactly an architect does. As architects, we received extensive training in design thinking, which promotes empathy, uh, teaches you how to problem solve, trains you how to develop various potential solutions, and then it helps you kind of determine 
how do you identify the solution that's most likely to work? In addition, architectural education embarks on a grueling journey of studies to understand design theory, architectural history, anthropology, building code research, accessibility, sustainable design, and and sustainable design, I'm talking about uh, being able to design a space that utilizes less electricity, um, gas, water, using more passive design to heat and cool the space. And then we go into construction, cost analysis, structural and seismic design, building systems, as far as mechanical, electrical, and plumbing design. Um, Which brings me to my original opening question. Why are architects designing or impacting so few buildings globally? It would seem that architects would be a valuable resource um, with all of this knowledge and experience uh, to, to help with the built environment at all scales. But I suspect that Part of the reason is due to the lack of understanding of what architects do. This is 12 years now into my uh, career, and my own brother actually recently told me that he doesn't even know what I do. And then I came across this survey by Architects Journal, which kind of quantified this this sentiment. A few facts that I pulled from that, uh, 72% of the individuals that were surveyed were unaware that architects apply for planning permission. 79% didn't know that architects ensure that buildings comply with health and safety legislation. And 86% had no idea that architects can help with the selection of contractors. So just a few things to to kind of show that the vast majority of people um, probably don't even understand what architects do. Um, so that's that's probably part of the reason. But to help with the discussion um, over this three-part series, I've enlisted a few friends that are architects that excel in various areas of the profession. So we'll have Anthony Laney of Laney LA, Evan Troxel of HMC Architects, Lance Psycho of F9 Productions and Inside the Firm Podcast, Mark LePage of Entre Architect, and Eric Reinholdt of 30 by 40 Design Workshop. So come back for the next couple episodes to to get some of their insight as well. But today, to kick off this conversation, my guest grew up on the countryside of Austria in a small village near Salzburg. Being surrounded by mountains, he started skiing very early and was actually a professional ski jumper until he was 19. After he retired from the sport, he discovered architecture as a new passion. And looking back at his childhood in the mountains, the connection to the natural surrounding and the importance of a balanced relationship between humans and nature remained a foundation of his architectural work. He began his architectural training at the University of Innsbruck and went on to teach at the Institute for Experimental Architecture under Patrick Schumacher, of Zaha Hadid Architects, and Yetel Thorsen of Snahetta. And in 2013, he received his master's degree from the Technical University of Vienna. And with his wife, Faye, and friend, Sun Dayung, he won a small competition which led to the formation of their first studio, Penda. That's P-E-N-D-A. And now he and his wife went on to start their own studio, Prech. P-R-E-C-H-T. 
Studio Plek is a fresh architecture studio operating from the mountains of Salzburg. They work on a wide scope of projects that range from ecological high-rises and bamboo buildings to interior designs, product designs, or visual identity. And over the last five years, they've produced over 130 projects and converted 40 of them into reality. They are currently working on projects in Europe, North and South America, the Middle East, and Asia. And as a young office, they take pride in being a part of a new generation of architects that, with a fresh voice, speaks up to tackle the challenges of our time, to change course and create the future we want to live in. His studio believes in architecture designed for sustainability, authenticity that defines a certain culture, and adaptability. Chris Precht. I think I got close. Chris, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Demetrius. You got very, very close with the pronunciation. Yeah. yeah. I've heard much, I have heard much worse variations. <laughs> So glad I got at least close. Uh, I was trying to go for the the German pronunciation, um, but did my best. <laughs> That's the most tricky one. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, thanks again for joining me. Um, so today we're we're gonna have a little conversation about architecture and kind of the evolution of architecture, where we're at today. And I couldn't think of anyone better to have joined me in this conversation. You're sort of kind of one of the growing thought leaders in architecture right now, whether you know it or not. <laughs> that and puts a lot of pressure on me now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you're starting to do speaking engagements and, and uh, touring around a lot to do that. So wanted to uh, kind of pick your brain and have a little bit of a conversation about that today. So let me start off with how has that touring been uh, doing all the speaking engagements and how many have you done so far? Um, I try to minimize them. Like I do maybe 10 per year, uh, but I don't want to exceed over that. So I say to a lot, uh, to a lot of, uh, to a lot of proposals. No, um, because I anyway need to travel also a lot for projects and, and things. Um, and I really enjoy being at home. And, uh, so the more I speak, the more I'm away from projects and from, uh, uh, from my day job. So I try to minimize them as good as possible, but, um, I do around 10 per year. Oh, wow. How, how many do you think you've done so far? Uh, I, I really started maybe like t three years ago. I think the first year I did many. I didn't say no to anything. Um, <laughs> I let my naivety agree to everything. Uh, but it was also beautiful because I saw a lot of different places around the world. So, um, yeah, and I think I've done around like 50 lectures or so. Okay. So aside from um, your bio uh, that I kind of introduced you with, uh, tell me a little bit more about yourself and, and your firm. You guys just opened a, a new studio. Uh, I know you started uh, Penda uh, previously, mm -hmm. but uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and, and what you guys have going on. Yeah, that is right. Um, so we started our first office called Panda in China. So that was around uh, four or five years ago. Um, and two years ago, we moved back to Austria, to the city, uh, away from the city. So um, we didn't move to, to any city in Austria. We didn't move to, a to any village. Uh, we moved to the mountains of Austria. Um, so, so we are really far off the grid and we try to 
to run our studio from here. Um, and the main difference is that my wife is now really involved in the in the office. Um, so we tried to also rebrand it a little bit that it's both of us who who are leading the office. Um, so we rebranded uh, our office um, with Precht, uh, which has a little bit more authentic feeling also to it, because I think that is a very important uh, topic in the, especially on the countryside, that you stand with your name for something you are doing and create a little bit authenticity um, to your work. Yeah, so we so we rebranded re ourselves, and now we are working from the mountains of Austria. It's uh, it's very different than from the center of Beijing. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, talking about, you know, kind of branding yourself and, and, and having your name as part of the, the company name. It's here in the US, it's kind of gone a different direction. You know, previously, it was all about kind of the main architecture and, or main architect and their name. Uh, now, I think people are starting to go away from that and have sort of a, a just a, a general branded name. So it's interesting to see that that kind of difference around the world. Yeah, I think it also has something to do with the size of an office. Um, yeah. So be, before we were quite large, we had like 18 uh, employees and so. So I think it made a little bit sense to also um, make ourselves a little bit on a, on a broader platform. But now we are very, very small um, and we try very hard to keep ourselves very small. Um, so there is a different feeling to it. It's much more personal now um, what we are doing, and yeah, I think that was that was a, a right decision to do. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. Um, Chris, before we get into the the meat of the conversation, I wanted to take a step back and give our listeners a little bit of a background and understanding about kind of where architecture has come from, and to do that. You gotta go back in time. Time, 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 time. About 400,000 years ago, hunter-gatherers are constructing camps with single large huts for the group. The end of the Ice Age was a time of transition from a hunter-gatherer mode to an agricultural way of life, and many of the first civilizations were centered around a supposedly godlike king. It was natural to go from the tribal idea of the land belongs to the gods to the idea that all of the kingdom belongs to the god king. Since the god king was supposed to personify the whole community, this was still a form of community ownership, but now personalized. Privileges of use and control of various types were distributed to the ruling elite based on custom and politics. To guard their power, the nobility frequently pushed for greater legal or customary recognition of their land rights. As construction techniques evolved, nobility utilized architecture to reinforce their power and influence through design and express their status in various styles of luxury around the world. Aesthetics were paramount for public structures, especially religious buildings, to inspire people and to house public functions. Architects were well respected for their craft, so much so that Imhotep, chief architect to the Egyptian pharaoh Dozer and architect of the Steppe Pyramid at Saqqara, the first known monumental stone building, was considered the god of architecture in some circles. Towards the end of the Stone Age, 
ceremonial structures built from large stones like Stonehenge began to appear in Northern Europe. These structures are believed to have had a religious or ritualistic function, and in some cases the alignment of their stones reveals a sophisticated knowledge of astronomy. Minoans, based on the Greek Isle of Crete, utilized a mixture of stone, mud brick, and plaster to construct elaborate palaces and domed burial structures hidden in the walls. About 600 BC, inspired by the theory and practice of earlier Egyptian stone masons and builders, Greeks set about replacing the wooden structures of their public buildings with stone structures. The typical rectangular building design was often surrounded by columns on all four sides. Roofs were laid with timber beams covered by terracotta tiles. The flattened triangular shape at each end of the building, known as pediments, were usually filled with sculptural decoration, also known as friezes. By the late 4th and 5th centuries BC, Greek architects began to incorporate circular structures embellished with black marble to highlight certain architectural elements and provide rich color contrast. These buildings were further adorned with sculptures of mythological heroes and events in Greek history and culture. In Rome, to increase Rome's power and majesty throughout Italy and beyond, Roman architecture required public buildings to be imposing, large-scale, and highly functional. And with the flair for engineering, construction, and military matters, Roman architecture was exemplified in the implementation of arches and concrete, and achievements of aqueducts, bridges, roads, municipal structures like public baths, temples, sports facilities, theaters, and amphitheaters. Roman architects seized the opportunity to create new towns from scratch, designing urban grid plans based on two wide streets. From 330 to 554 AD, Byzantine architects continued the tradition of Roman architecture, constructing several churches and religious buildings, introducing new techniques of concave triangular sections of masonry known as pendatives, in order to carry the weight of ceiling domes down to corner piers. Islamic architecture in the 7th century consisted of both religious and secular designs, mosques, palaces, tombs, and forts, and it was known for its radiant colors, rich patterns, and distinct features of minarets, domes, pointed and horseshoe arches, and sculptural vaulting. The Khmer civilization, known today as Cambodia, was an important contributor to the architecture of Southeast Asia. Palaces and temples were built out of brick, sandstone, and laterite, and were designed for immortal gods. Numerous stones were carved with artistic craftsmanship to portray the gods and the deities. For the temples dedicated to Buddhism, the architecture is prominent with stone carving related to the stories of Buddha and his teachings. Traditional houses are rectangular, two-story buildings with the basic structure of wooden frame, walls of straw, or bamboo, and a roof covered with thatched leaves of dry coconut palms. Incan and Mesoamerican architecture played a big part in developing South American architecture. The Incas developed an extensive road infrastructure running the whole length of the western side of the continent. And amazingly, these roads were actually only constructed for animals or walkers as they had not invented the wheel. The early buildings were pyramids which remain the largest structures outside of Egypt. 
in North Africa, Islam and Christianity had a significant influence, including mosques built of mud, the rock-hewn churches of Ethiopia, and the Islamic monuments of coastal Eastern Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa consisted of villages and rural mosques where there was significant use of local wood, mortarless stone masonry, and round structures. In India, architecture varied greatly, influenced by many cultures that came as a result of India's proximity to other regions. Much of the early style was expressed in detailed rock-cut temples. The introduction of an Islamic kingdom to India led to the development of Indo-Islamic architecture, combining Indian and Islamic features. And later, during the British colonial period, European styles including neoclassical, Gothic revival, and Baroque became prevalent across India. During this Bronze Age, most buildings in China were wood, designed based on a horizontal axis, and the focus of the design was on the width of the building. Walls only served as a separation of rooms without bearing the weight of the whole house, which is unique to China. Back in Europe, Romanesque architects had neither the imagination of Greeks nor the engineering ability of the Romans. In general, the style employed thick walls, round arches, piers, columns, growing vaults, narrow slit windows, large towers, and decorative arcading. The basic load of the building was carried not on its arches or columns, but by its massive walls, and its roof vaults and buttresses were relatively primitive in comparison with later styles. Interiors were simple, heavy with stone, and had dim lighting. This led to Gothic architecture. And the term Gothic was originally an insult to describe the type of medieval architecture that Renaissance artists considered barbaric. It was in reference to Gothic tribes who had destroyed classical art. The Gothic architecture is characterized by thinner walls ribbed vaults, flying buttresses, huge stained glass windows, and elaborate patterns and pointed arches, believed to originate from Assyrian and later Islamic architecture. The pointed arch permitted architects to raise vaults much higher than Romanesque designs, creating the impression of reaching towards heaven. The soaring ceilings and bright light revolutionized design by transforming the interior of many cathedrals into inspirational sanctuaries. Later, Florentine architect and artist Filippo Brunelleschi had begun studying ancient Roman designs and was convinced that ideal building proportions could be ascertained from mathematical and geometrical principles. Brunelleschi's design of the herringbone brickwork double-shell dome of the Florence Cathedral ushered in a new style based on the long-neglected placement and proportion rules of classical architecture. Renaissance buildings were modeled on the classical architecture of the Greeks and Romans, but retained modern features of complex domes and towers from Byzantine and Gothic architecture. As the 16th century unfolded, the religious, political, and philosophical certainties began to unravel. European-wide doubt on the integrity and theology of the Roman Church was the catalyst for several wars and led directly to the counter-reformation movement launched by Rome to attract the masses away from Protestantism. 
Renewed patronage of the visual arts and architecture was a key instrument in this propaganda campaign and resulted in a grander, more dramatic style in both areas. Baroque architecture is a more complex, more detailed, more elaborate, more ornamented form of Renaissance architecture. More swirls, more complex manipulation of light, color, texture, and perspective. On the outside of its churches, it featured more ostentatious facades, domes, columns, and other embellishments. On the inside, its floor plans were more varied. Long narrow naves were displaced by wider, sometimes circular shapes. Separate chapels and other areas were created, and ceilings were covered in fresco paintings. It was all designed to dazzle the spectator. A revolt against the earlier Baroque style of Louis XIV's court gave way to more decorative, playful style of architecture known as Rococo, which was really only concerned with interior design. It emerged and remained centered in France, where in lieu of rebuilding their homes and chateaus, rich patrons remodeled their interiors. The style was far too whimsical and lighthearted for the exterior of religious and civic buildings. On the other end of society, the ordinary, the peasants, or the poor were relegated to simple wooden huts or simple homes made of mud brick. In the late 16th century, feudal principles of land ownership, founded on obligation of service and custom, were replaced with a radically new theory of landholding that asserted exclusive control of the ground, allowing owners to use and profit by as they saw fit. In turn, the rising profitability of land and the monetization of the capital it represented created economic conditions for Britain and later the United States to rise as world powers. The first industrial revolution, defined from 1760 to sometime between 1820 and 1840, was a transition to new manufacturing processes in Europe and the United States. Simultaneously, neoclassicism emerged as a timely support for ancient regimes throughout Europe and a model for youthful empires like the US. It retained all the engineering advances and new materials of the modern era, but was characterized by monumental structures, supported or decorated by columns of Doric, Ionic, or Corinthian pillars, and topped with classical Renaissance stones. Technical innovations of late 18th century architecture added strength to the domes and their dimensions increased, lending increased grandeur to civic buildings, churches, and educational facilities, and large private homes. Not many new ideas emerged from 19th century. Architecture in Europe and America witnessed several revivals of old styles. The Greek Revival, the Gothic Revival, a Neo-Romanesque Revival, and the Second Empire style. The most prominent architectural masterpiece at the time was the Eiffel Tower. The history of architecture has largely functioned as a tool to exert security and power for royalty and to please the gods. However, a societal shift in values and the exponential rise of an instant gratification and short-term thinking culture has altered the nature of the practice. The 19th century marked the beginning of a new and unfamiliar age for the profession, leaving architects to redefine what it means to be an architect, to find a new place in the world, a new purpose, while simultaneously attempting to explain this moving target of purpose. Tune in to part two of this series to hear more on the evolution of architecture. So let's, uh, let's kind of jump into the conversation today. I wanted to start with 
what, in your opinion, does an architect do? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that you can sum it up with um, that we think about the future and we try to to build the future. And I think it is in, in, in this order. I think that as architects, we are constantly in a space between uh, the virtual um, and the reality. So we are always in between our ideas, our inspirations, um, uh, some concepts, so everything that is going on in our brain. But then we are also um, involved in the messiness of reality in all the const uh, in, in all the restrictions and all the, the side conditions and clients and budgets and, and things like this. So I think uh, somehow we live in both worlds. And this is a very interesting um, space uh, uh, to do, uh, to be in. This might now sound a little bit idealistic that we just think about uh, the future. Maybe it sounds a little bit like like this uh, this guy sitting in his wool jacket in in his library and smoking a pipe or so. Um, <laughs> and it's not that that idealistic. I think what we uh, what our day to day job is. Our day to day job is probably uh, uh, a bit more uh, more messy. And it's uh, but this Stressful. is also somehow the beauty that uh, that our day to day job is never the same um and but it still lets you think about those questions of the future this might involve um like how will the future be for for example this couple you're building now this single family home for yeah um or how is the future um of our cities um those have very different uh different answers uh, to them but they both somehow makes your mind wander and puts you in a in a space of uh, of inspiration and um, and ideas, and I think this is a very beautiful a beautiful part of our job. Yeah, but uh, also when it comes to reality, I think th there might be a couple of different layers to it, and this is actually a question I'm uh, I'm thinking about a lot. Uh, like, what is reality that is really shaping our buildings or our ideas you know is it the is it this this reality that comes from the client that uh, they want to have a certain house for example they have a certain brief for you is reality the budgeting of a project or is there a, a more chapter objective reality for architects to build for you know how does a how does a building influence our um our uh, our natural surrounding how does it influence our ecosystem mm -hmm. um how does it uh, how are we combining nature with our building mm -hmm. so i think there are a lot of different uh, different realities than to to whatever you build i think harari summed it up very well in his books when he was talking about those fictional stories that that uh, people invented yeah um, um and they are somehow ruling also our day-to-day -day life right like fictional stories like money or yeah. um or nations or so so this is this is not an objective reality right it yeah. just exists because uh because we invented them and because they are somehow guiding all of our economic system yeah. um so we build a lot for this but actually our planet does not really care about those things right? yeah so are there bigger realities that architects uh, need to take care of um so i think this you know these layers of reality i think uh, well i think a lot about those uh, lately yeah and how do you how do you see sort of one determining what that that primary reality is and 
how do you push, uh, let's say, your client to see that perspective of let's address that reality that, you know, what we're trying to target? Those are very different or difficult uh, points to address them, right? Because, of course, a client has a different reality what he wants to get out of a project. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that um, we are not allowed to think about uh utopia or mm -hmm. to have uh, utopian ideas in our work mm -hmm. um, so we in our studio we somehow address it a little bit different so we work always on two projects at the same time um, we never work on more projects and mm -hmm. we try not to work on less projects so one of those two projects is always coming from the client side so this one is financing our office uh, this project deals with restrictions we have with compromises so um everything that uh, you know like like connects with a kind of a teamwork for reality um but uh, we, we always then also have a self-initiated project we work on so those are projects that uh do not have a client they are not paid by anyone so they are self-financed as well um, and there we try to think a little bit more utopian so what are topics of the future that uh, that we as architects need to address and maybe at a certain point once we publish them they can turn into a business um, mm -hmm. so we might try uh, we might find some clients so we did that before uh, with a couple of projects for example all of our bamboo projects um, happened that way so we worked for two years um, on those projects and we financed it by ourselves and once we published it we found two or three clients then who wanted to build them um, so in that way we turned it then into a reality um, and maybe that uh, that puts the the business side of architecture on a bit of a different level and i think well as architects we also need to to think about uh, about this side yeah hmm. You're you're kind of you have like a tight constraint then if you're looking at you know one project that's sort of financing you and then the second project is explorative are you guys just living on tight means to to make this structure work or is it uh you know kind of supplemented by books and uh speaking engagements and that sort of thing you don't earn a lot with speaking engagements. <laughs> um, no, uh, I mean we uh, we think now a little bit different of of the business side. Um, so we downsized a lot. Uh, so we have we have now like my wife and me. We are leading the office, and we have two employees, and that's our whole team. So I try very hard to keep it as small as possible, because um, that gives me as an architect also a lot of freedom. So I can decide, for example, on which project I want to work on. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have to say yes to everything. And the ability as an architect to say no to certain projects uh, is the biggest freedom um, I could have ever asked for because it also puts you on a much uh, different level when it comes to negotiations about fees, about uh, projects in general, um, that you have the ability to just say no. And at the moment, I think we say no to around 90% or so of mm -hmm. all incoming projects. And we really just take the one off who fits uh, like our vision, um, but also um, who, yeah, of course, need to pay for uh, for for all the expenses we have. Yeah. But I think in when we were in Beijing, I had a much different um, a different idea of what success means as an architect. Um, 
uh, like we had a, a larger team um, back then in, in Beijing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, I wanted to grow our business. I wanted to grow the, the number of employees. I wanted to grow the amount of projects yeah. uh, we are getting in. Um, and I also wanted to grow the, the importance of the projects. Um, but I somehow... Uh, you know, I somehow discovered that I just was mainly writing emails anymore, and uh, and I'm in client client meetings. But I really missed the thing what I really love to do, um, and this is like designing and working on the computer on projects by myself as well, right? Yeah. Um, so I missed that part of architecture, and once we moved back. Um, I know that I had to change uh, some parts and I discovered that actually success is a, is a matter of definition. Um, before, you know, I maybe wanted to be, um, you know, an influential architect, uh, architect um, who have a lot of projects and so. But uh, now I discovered that actually I don't want to be necessarily a successful architect, uh, nor do I want to be a famous architect or a rich architect. I would be a happy architect. And I think this is uh, this is really important decisions we make that uh, we don't necessarily need to make a lot of growth in our office, but we define success, successful uh, to to be happy with what we are doing. And as long as we can, uh, you know, like support uh, our family with it and our employees with it, then I think we are on the right uh, path to do it um, because now we have much more passion for the projects we work on. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's kind of the direction that I think a lot of people, uh, younger architects, kind of our generation, I think we're the same age, um, 34, 35 ish. Um, uh, I think that's kind of the direction that everyone wants to go is more of, I want to be a happy architect, not necessarily a stressed out name on the, on the building, um, you know, grow to, 300 plus employee type person or company yeah and i think maybe it's also not i think we are very different generation from the generations who came before us that's for sure yeah i think everything we do we try to find a meaning uh, with it um it's uh it's not so much anymore that we necessarily want to make a, a standpoint or that we need to um need to have our opinions heard but uh, maybe to find work that really makes a difference and and has a meaning um and uh i think this this era of the architect as this master um who you know who 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 is is famous in newspapers and so i think this era is a little bit over and i think we are more living in an in an era of of collaboration and uh and and teamwork and so yeah yeah and that's the that's kind of where I am as well. I, I came to this realization that no matter how much work I put out, it's a very small percentage that I'm providing to affect the world. Um, so I think you want to go for quality of what you do. And I switched to wanting to do this podcast in part to hopefully impact more um, so it's not necessarily just the the individual work that I put out, but maybe the ideas that I can share. And I think that's the direction that you're going with your explorative work is the, you know, 
solving problems in a different way and inspiring people and then hopefully you can build it which turns into something else uh, for a lot, of, a lot of other architects to to imitate or spread um, is that kind of yeah, how exactly. you see uh, it, it also has then a side effect right I mean we are um, we are still a young young architect and this is a very weird place to to be in because as an architect you you mainly get very good when you are in your 60s and in your 70s right yeah so i think for, but but i think we are living in a time which is very has a very short attention span and everything needs to happen immediately so um but uh, if you if you define success not necessarily by growing or um, or by uh, or making a lot of profit and so, then I think you have more time to breathe in between. You know, to to go like it is in my case to go to nature or be on the mountain, mm -hmm. and things like that, right. And this also keeps maybe the passion and longer life that when you are in your prime time in your sixties or in your seventies as an architect, you still have the necessary passion. Yeah. Um, to, to work on projects, uh, so I think this um, this notion of uh, of you know work life balance it's not just for your immediate life, but it's also to keep the balance um, alive for for a much longer term. Um, I'm fully aware that architecture is not um, it's not a sprint, but uh, a long marathon. Exactly, um, a lot of teacher or not teachers, uh, a lot of people that you know that are ahead in in career. Um, that I've come across have always said while I was in school and after school, you know, really cherish the the time you have in school because you won't be able to do this out in the real world. And what you're doing is saying, why not? <laughs> I can still yeah. do this and explore and do crazy things. Um, not necessarily that someone has to finance it right away, but I can continue this. Yeah. And this is, this is also a very weird thing, right? Because um, it was somehow a little bit similar i see that a lot in architects that um you have so much passion when you're studying architecture you mm -hmm. can work you know all night long and do uh, do night shifts uh, without ends uh, because you have so much uh, fun working on your projects but then when you're starting with the business world and you are you're thrown into reality then this passion can sink enormously and i think these are a lot of problems that, that our industry has you know like with pressure with uh, with this um um, with this notion that we, you know, we have deadlines and uh, we need to change things before a deadline and stuff like this, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, but actually, that's really weird because architecture in reality is also so beautiful. You you are you are finally um, allowed to turn your ideas into reality, and actually, the the passion you have for architecture should grow by that and not get minimized. Um, so it's really weird uh, in a way, and uh, I think it's in our generation to rethink a little bit uh, what we are doing and how we are doing it. Yeah, definitely. So going back to the exploration side of your business, um, what are sort of the, the two, two to three kind of top concerns that you guys are um, looking at as solving as an architect um, or that architects should be trying to solve? Um concerns i think um i think i would ha i would have two major ones i think one is a uh, the ecological downfall i think that architects uh, need address and the second one is uh, the rise of technology um i think the the 
the ecological problem. I, I think that uh, like we are in a generation where, where climate change is not anymore a, a theoretical possibility, right? But yeah. uh, it's reality for us. Um, and I think it's also now in every um, architect's uh, job description that we need to find some solutions for that um and uh but uh, you know I, I mentioned before that that sometimes it's very difficult to to say what is reality um and that sometimes our realities is based in those fictional stories but so was architecture all the time right so we built somehow we built like the pyramids for some gods. Mm -hmm. uh, we also built like the castles for some some political system, like kings and queens. Mm -hmm. um, we built uh, now we're building mainly for an for an economic system, right? Uh, in order to make developers money. So we design a lot for for those fictional stories as well. They shaped somehow us as architects and our work, um, but. You know, our planet does not really care for that, right? And <laughs> yeah. uh, the ecology side of our planet will, um, you know, has then a downfall because of that. And um, what we are doing, the building industry, has a big impact uh, on, like, for example, climate change or pollution. You know, we produce like 40% of all the CO2. Um, we use more than 50% of the world's energy. So it has a lot of impact of how we design and what we are doing. Mm -hmm. And I think some, uh, um, as architects, we also have a responsibility to think how we can work on, on more ecological alternatives uh, of, our, of our building um, industry. Um, you know, I lived for five years in China. Um, I lived in Beijing, so I know what pollution can do to your health, what pollution um, um, uh, can can do to your body. Um, so, and yeah, maybe our work, you know, we, we are not our specifically, but our generation's work um, is not anymore um, guided by some some styles or, uh, or some uh, some forms or some academic theories and so maybe um the the work for our generation is based on on topics like like climate change pollution um artificial intelligence uh technology um and all of this and is based more in this objective reality and not anymore in those fictional stories um and the second concern uh well, maybe concern is a bit uh, is a bit too much, but I'm very I'm thinking a lot about technology, and I hope I find the 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 correct balance of words that I can can describe a little bit in this I'm a little bit in this balance between con concern, but also uh, have a big interest in it, right? What yeah. technology uh, will do um, to to our future. Um, so I, I think that the, the the ecological system always needs. Well, uh, uh, the, the economic system always needs value, right? Uh, and the technology system always needs data um, to be measured. But technology needs to measure everything. And in order to measure something, we need it needs to create perfect conditions around us. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, everyone who, who works with the computer knows exactly how it is, right? Uh, that the computer, it's very uh, easy to create perfect things but it's very difficult to create imperfect things. So, for example, it's very easy to create a perfect wall, but it's very difficult to create leaves lying around uh, on the street. Mm. Um, 
And I think this is with a lot uh, of things. For example, in, in the city, we create parks, uh, but we make them so perfect that um, it's, you know, we're not allowed anymore to go on the grassland. <laughs> um, yeah. Or uh, with our building, it's similar, right? We, we create perfect buildings that are highly efficient um, and that are highly measurable by data, how much energy they use, um, how productive they are. Um, but, you know, we have a schedule when to open our windows uh, yeah. for that. Um, so I think that all of this um, this uh, drive to towards perfection somehow kills this beautiful uh, sense of imperfection in our life. And, you know, as human beings, we are wonderfully imperfect. I think the, the best stories in our life happen when perfection uh, takes a break. Yeah. Um, so some somehow that you know like we grow our food, for example, at our our own food in our house, and the the the, the nicest tomatoes are the ones which are somehow shaped like a heart or, or <laughs> like a lung or something, right? Yeah. Um, or uh, like my wife, we, we one time I think it was in prague or so and we got lost uh because both of our mobile phones didn't work yeah um so we we found this little cafe uh somewhere um and uh it was probably not the nicest cafe but somehow we we remembered it uh, uh so passionately right it's in our, our brain so somehow this this imperfection that we didn't know where we are let us find this this really personal spot and this created a personal connection to something hmm. and but i fear if um if this if technology and maybe artificial intelligence in 20 years um is um, guiding the way how we work, we lose a lot of this imperfect uh, things mm -hmm. in our buildings. So um, we lose, for example, the the connection to our senses. We lose the connection to nature, uh, and all of this little imperfection that uh, that we really cherish. Yeah. Um, so I'm a little bit concerned what technology will do, but I'm also very interested how you know it goes it goes forward. Um, yeah. yeah, one of my uh, things with the on the technology front is that I think it's going to free up and completely shift the way that we work. Uh, so a lot more people will work from home and potentially you can build in that connection to nature and be able to work from the park or, you know, kind of free you up in that sense. Um, so that's the kind of plus side in my perspective. Hopefully. I mean, it's very difficult to predict what technology will do, right? So yeah. the invention of the computer, the prediction of the, of the future was um, the main problem of future civilization will be that we will be too bored. So this was the prediction, right? And I think we have many problems in our civilization, uh, but boredom is none of them. <laughs> yeah. I think we are on a stress level that has never been before, right? So yes, uh, like supposedly technology should free up a lot of space for us and should take over a lot of tasks we don't want to do. But, you know, history proved that it also could go definitely in a different side, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's very hard to predict what uh, technology will do, but I think that as architects, no matter if uh, if this one, you know, how how large the influence of technology will have in the way we design and in the way how our buildings operate, I think we we try to need uh, we need to try to find. Um, still some spaces for this imperfection and for spaces that really connects to our senses that we don't lose 
lose the sense of how things smell and how things uh, how things uh, Feel. are haptic and yeah exactly so um yeah i think whatever we do we uh, we we should try to create spaces uh to to still keep uh, the the connection to our senses. Yeah, to definitely pull people out <laughs> uh to enjoy and to like you said feel, touch, smell um or see and uh cuz I think we're overstimulated <laughs> with technology in that sense. Uh there's too much information, so try and design to attract people to to go explore and and experience uh other things besides the computer <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so where where are you guys at on population as as one of those concerns issues because that's kind of been on my mind on top of that i just uh just saw uh the i don't know if you're into um marvel uh infinity wars and endgame and all of that not necessarily in the yeah. sense of capping population but dealing with population and population growth I mean, the predictions are, right, that uh, we will flatten out at a certain point, like at 10 billion people or so, uh, we will flatten. Um, the the question, and this one, if our resources are better dressed, um, I think that, that our planet is able to handle that. Um, but I think that, uh, um, that well, growth, of course, is, is a problem. Population growth is a problem. But I think a bigger problem is the economic or the, the strive for growing economically constantly. Um, and, you know, of distribution of, how the, of the wealth. Um, I think this is a much bigger problem than, uh, than, than population growth. Mm. But uh, while the predictions are like uh, 10 billion people, we will... Uh, will be on the on the earth and the planet on by 2050 or so mm -hmm. and 70 percent of them will live in cities yeah. um, so that's that's very good you know on an architectural point of view because we won't run out of uh, projects that easily <laughs> yeah um, but uh, you know if we continue building like we do mm -hmm. and produce so much uh, so much waste so much uh, co2 um, etc um, then this will become a very big problem so i think it is also on us and as architects of how we uh, we we build differently or how to try to find ecological alternatives to how we build yeah because i've i'm sort of uh self-educating now on uh the psychology uh environmental psychology and some studies show although they were done on rats uh studies show that you know when you get a denser population in a confined area you subsequently have poorer environments um, which is what we see as pollution and um rundown of of the streets and uh, utilities and etc uh, bad living conditions so I think as a industry we need to be very aware uh, hyper aware and vigilant about you know preparing for that and developing coming up with ideas exploring now like you guys are doing uh, how do we solve that what do we do to introduce nature into that environment how do we provide privacy uh, sound control different things like that to to manage the psyche of individuals while we're bringing so many people into a single location. 
Exactly. Uh, how do, how are we designing buildings for our well-being um, and and that are healthy to us? Um, and how does this also influence our natural environment? That uh, that is that both can somehow live in harmony, right? So that's that's healthy to us as a species, but it's also healthy to other species, to to nature, to our ecosystem, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Do you have any projects that that you guys have either worked on or that you um, sort of look to as inspiration, maybe of that address those concerns that you're looking at? One one big inspiration is probably the High Line. Um, that you know, like this this uh, reuse of the High Line. That it is it was done the way it, it was uh, it is now. It's it actually brought so much change, right? But um, it showed that it's not necessarily the correct way to build another building, right? And use this space uh, for a developer to make another buck, but to introduce uh, nature back into a city that people really enjoy and makes it so successful that it's also a, an economic success, right? That the real estate uh, uh, next to it uh, is, is is growing so fast. And so I think this is a very good example of how a sense of ecology can also influence uh, the economy in a way, and both then can grow with each other. Um, when it comes to technology, I think we were inspired uh, last time we were in Bali. We we have we have been at the Green Village, uh, which is built by Buku. It's all built with bamboo, hmm. and I think this also shows like what craftsmen can really do. And I think that's uh, important in an age where. where um, AI might take over in our generation, right? Um, like robotics is taking over, mm -hmm. that craftsmen can produce um, such a beautiful piece of art um, and uh, that inspires uh, so many people um, with something so rudimentary like bamboo. I yeah. think that is really beautiful to see. Um, but of course, we are also trying to to work on projects that, that go into this topic. Um, you know, we are living... Uh, on the mountain uh, like we are growing our own food we have our own garden we are trying to live like as independent as somehow possible um, and I know that not everyone is as fortunate that we are um, but we try to bring those ideas also to the city um, so that people have maybe their space to grow their own vegetables, um, to live out tarkas also on the in the city, um, and that maybe also the way of how we are growing our food and how our food lands on the table becomes again part of our daily uh, of our daily life. That the food is not something that somewhere grows uh, mm -hmm. out of our sight and out of our mind, but that we somehow bring it back to the center of our lives. Mm. Um, and uh, more in connection of how our food really uh, grows and lands on our table. Yeah, so so you're thinking designing where you have sort of a farm built into your, your own site, um, even in your own house maybe, or apartment. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we did a concept which is called uh, uh, the farmhouse, which is a skyscraper that has private gardens um, for for the occupants to to grow their own food or uh, to have food grown for a wider surrounding. So yeah. this one then can be given out on the first floor. Um, and it's a kind of a skyscraper that is not an isolated island in the city, but mm -hmm. somehow connects to its neighborhood. 
um, you know, like you see what is happening, how the food is growing on the facade. Mm. Um, and then you can buy uh, the food, then uh, locally produced food um, mm. on the on the lower floors of the building. So it somehow connects then uh, with its surrounding. And I think this is a beautiful idea because at the moment we have a lot of, in the city, we have a lot of ivory towers that yeah. are not really connected to their surrounding. Yeah, all glass, but you sort of have a vertical farm in that sense. Yes, exactly. But always combined with with living spaces, because of course it also needs to be uh, economical, profitable for uh, for 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 a developer to build. Yes. Yeah, it's also incentive for someone that moves in there that they could potentially, you know, make a little money if they spend the time growing their own farm. Yeah, exactly. Actually, the project started um, that we were thinking about uh, about the refugee crisis um, mm -hmm. in Europe and how we can build some temporary homes, uh, very small sheds that on one hand uh, produce uh, like let the people sleep or live in there, but on the on the roof they can grow their own vegetables and uh, maybe sell it to a wider uh, a wider population. And this is a first uh, a first step of integration um, and getting to know people. Um, so yeah, we designed it uh, the first way for for this purpose, and then we thought, well, it is such a modular system, so actually we can also grow it in height and uh, uh, bring this whole concept to the center of our cities. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that um, is the natural side of it and how it completely um, gets rid of style, sort of. And I think you hinted at this a little bit earlier in our conversation of sort of this uh, diminishing stylistic part of architecture. How have you seen uh, or how what has been your opinion or perception of the evolution of architecture and how we getting to today of um, sort of not this defined style necessarily anymore. Yeah. Um, well, architecture was always defined uh, by style, right? Yeah. Um, it, it always had some, some rules of beauty, um, some systems to build, mm -hmm. uh, but the evolution always uh, most of the times came in steps in, in big contrast to the previous style. So, for example, the Baroque was very different than the Renaissance mm -hmm. um, and the Moderne um, uh, quit with everything that happened before. So <laughs> yeah. it always came uh, in big steps, um, uh, very in contrast to our own evolution where everything you know went from, from one to the next step and so but they were always really really small steps so it took very very long yeah. so i think in architecture the evolution is uh is way different but uh also a very excited one and maybe at the moment we are in this uh in this stage where we need this next step um but i think to in order to take this step maybe we don't need again rules of how to make beautiful buildings or how to make nice forms or what kind of shapes should define uh, the buildings we are in I think this time is over. Um, our generation um, has much bigger challenges to address um, as architects, uh, but maybe we need some rules of of ethics and uh, and moral buildings. You know that we say. Um, there's nothing new. Uh, Le Corbusier said it already, right? But mm -hmm. if you if you build a new building, then you take away space from nature, right? Mm -hmm. This was before a grassland or something. Yeah. But you take away space from nature, so find a way of how to give it back in your building. That yeah. The building itself uh, uh, can breathe again. 
Um, but also when we are building a new building in the city, we also take away space from a community, from a neighborhood, right? So try to find some ways of how um, how we give back this space again to a community um, so that the building is not isolated in the city, but uh, it has communal spaces where people can meet and gather. Um, so maybe we need some of those ethical rules instead of rules of beauty. Um, I don't know, but uh, but I think we are at this step now that we should not go forward with the status quo we have in the construction business, mm -hmm. um, but we have to rethink it uh, and uh, think of what will be the new steps of, of the future of our cities. Yeah, I love that um, moral design. Uh, <laughs> we have a, a big problem right now. Uh, so on a few fronts, I always tell people this story of uh, that I heard of a developer that was building a apartment or something, and the architect recommended you know a certain construction for uh, acoustical value, and uh, the developer, it was too expensive of a construction uh, system. So they basically said, you know, well, we're not going to do that. And of course, a few years later, they were sued for sound, uh, uh, too much sound transfer. And then everyone was pulled into the lawsuit and, you know, big mess. Uh, and, then, yeah. and then you also have situations where, um, you know, here in Los Angeles, we have the, the new Ram Stadium going in right smack in the middle of Inglewood and a lot of people are being gentrified out essentially uh price prices are going up um you know people are buying up their properties to you know tear down and build new homes so everything is going up and all these people in the community are moving out and that stadium you know is really going to be busy um what's eight nine probably 15 times out of the year, really. Um, mm. These type of sites, how do you open that up to the community that, you know, maybe you do farmer's markets or something that people can generate income and still live in that community. So there's a lot of things that we're, you know, we need to change the way that we look at and try and figure out a, a solution in those type of uh, situations to collaborate and be moral. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean the 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 example you mentioned with the guy with the or the developer with the soundproof material who got sued. Um, this is you know this is again because of a very short term thinking, right? Mm -hmm. You want to have the profit as fast as somehow possible to the present. Yeah. So it's all about you know how the, how is uh, you know this dictatorship of the presence um, mm -hmm. that everything needs to be as close to the presence because you don't know what it, what in five years or ten years will be, right? Yeah. Um, but I think that, uh, uh, you know, if you save, for example, there a buck, that means, uh, you know, the building w might need to get rebuilt in 20 years mm. because people also don't care about it. Um, but if you build a, a design that maybe costs 10% more in the beginning, but that people really care about and they keep it uh, healthy and, and vital and, you know, they grow their own food and they really have a personal connection with the architecture, mm -hmm. um, that might then stand for 50 or 70 years, right? Yeah. And in the end, uh, you know, that's better for the developer and it is also better for all of the, um, the ecological aspect. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, do you think architecture is relevant to the public anymore hmm. uh, 
when when I was in uh, in university, like this question was already discussed, right? Like it it, it almost felt like an AA meeting, uh, like <laughs> architects anonymous. Like yeah, where is our impact? How can we be important again? Yeah. Uh, and things like this. A lot of discussions about this topic, um, but yeah, um, but it, I think it is relevant, right? If you look at the numbers, like architects are involved in about five to eight percent of all buildings built worldwide right yeah so that might might uh, so sound like you know 95 percent of people have stopped listening to us yeah um while we were busy talking to ourselves yeah <laughs> um maybe you know we had for a long time just wrong topics and the 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 topics or the the, the answers and the quest uh, the questions and the answers to those questions are uh, are different different ones than we provide uh, than we than what we provide um so uh, i think like as a as a profession we really have to start uh, listening what is really needed and i think as i said before you know our challenges are as architects are much different ones than than uh, than formal or stylistic uh, 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 questions um i <laughs> i had a dog i have we have two cats in the in the office <laughs> they are kind of wild cats so they sleep outside right okay. and uh so i built them uh, two cat houses uh, <laughs> like really nicely with wood and i even insulated it uh, we gave them very soft materials in the inside uh but they hated them uh they still they still de uh, decided you know to sleep in this uh in this minimalistic looking flower pot uh maybe because they had good taste or maybe because it was just cozier for them right yeah. uh, but uh you know maybe because i didn't listen to or i didn't check what i what they really wanted and, and my architectural ego let me superimpose uh, their desires right <laughs> so um i think you know that uh like uh, it, it somehow showed me that probably the the most important tool for an architect are, are the ears um, yeah. to really listen of what is needed but one night we saw that actually this neighbor cat is a big cat um this cat is now sleeping in those houses. So maybe I just had the wrong client. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so I think we've had the right conversation. Like you mentioned, architects are a lot uh, future thinkers. So we've had the right conversation, but at the wrong time. And I think that, like you said, we were talking too much to ourselves and that's the reason I wanted to start this podcast to try and change the the conversation a little bit and make it a little more inviting, hopefully, so that, you know, people that aren't architects that, uh, you know, have, have some loose interests will pick up a few things and uh, hopefully encourage um, anyone that they come across to think about things a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, the right conversation, you know, like it starts with architectural education, right? Like what happens in our universities. And I just, I could just say from my personal experience, when I used to be a student and now I'm teaching again, um, like a lot, uh, a lot of students are just taught to, to think like an artist, you know, to mm. think fully creative. Um, and uh, that's not necessarily bad, but our, our 
job description is much more than than being an artist. You know, art artist is beautiful, but um, we are not an artist as architects. Um, we are much more than an than an artist. We have much more responsibility. Uh, we live in in constant compromise and conversation with other people. Nothing can happen without uh, without being a team player or without knowing the business side of things right so there's much more things than than being just creative that that plays into architecture but a lot a uh, little of that uh, at least in my experience is taught in architectural schools mm-hmm. um yeah so maybe you know maybe it starts there to to really have um have the right uh, conversations and you know now with 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 this bachelor and master system that you just study for six semesters or so to to gain a bachelor degree um this is a little bit less time you know to for for architects to fully develop um the skills needed uh, uh to be an architect um you know it, it especially is a lot very little time to to fail as uh, with your projects to go in wrong directions to get miserable uh, <laughs> with your ideas and with your designs and then somehow work yourself out of that but failing is something so important uh, for an architectural soul um, to learn and to cope with uh, and and to to cope with it in a in a healthy way um, that uh, you know you know how you get out of it and you know how to make it differently and better uh, but there is very little time to do that in in this education system so um, I think there is there is a lot of maybe we can improve also in the, in this system uh, in our universities in order to to create a better conversation for for what will happen in the future yeah no I totally agree with that um, I think you know, a lot of students in, in my experience were pushed that artistic route, like you said, of, um, you know, making something beautiful, but not necessarily uh, with a reason, necessarily. Um, it was just pushing the envelope of design, um, but not always rooted in a, a solid solu- uh, societal solution. Yeah, I mean... Uh... Being an architect is not just about you know working with the software and uh, creating nice things out what you can do with the software, but uh, you know seeing it as another tool and um, how to really address important topics. But you know to being the creative mind in in architectural school, um, you know please be that. This is really the most beautiful state you're in, and uh, and it also creates this whole passion for architecture. And you know do nothing that somehow minimizes this passion. Um, but maybe this is also the reason you know that this passion decreases very fast uh, when you're thrown into reality. Um, yeah. So maybe there are some ways how to uh, how to th- rethink that differently yeah okay chris coming to the the close uh we have one segment that we we're introducing this year that we call what was that like and in this segment we we ask our our guests uh what was that like when you did something just to get a little bit more information about you and learn a little bit more about you. So today I'm going to ask, what was it like when you got your first project? Hmm. Uh, that it was quite interesting, actually. Um, 
I think getting the first project is uh, is always very, very hard, you know, like uh, before you do a lot of things and it, it just, you know, it never takes to the next step. And you always ask yourself, well, when will I get, when will I take this next step? But this feeling never stops, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, this is constant in an architectural description, right? Like, when do I get my first project? Then how do I get the bigger projects? How do I get invited to this competition? You know, how can I get the lecture at this university? And things like this. It never somehow stops. But this is also a beautiful way of, you know, growing as an architect. Yeah. But I think especially the first project is a very important one. Um, and we uh, we actually got it by a very sophisticated uh business solution so we lied um, <laughs> <laughs> so this was a very a very good strategy so we lied a little we lied about the the sizes of our of our office and you know of our experience and so like it was a, a kind of a uh, a fake it till you make it kind of thing <laughs> yeah. um we had this it was it our first project this was in china and we we were in the final of a competition and uh, we had to present our project um we were both in austria my wife and myself and we had to present our our project um but we had just to film our screen so because we needed to present the project on our screen um so we shared our screen and they couldn't see us um and we put in the background a google youtube and on youtube um office background sound so we had <laughs> uh, so there were a sound of people chatting and uh walking around and a fax machine was going and telephones were ringing and so um so it made us it made us uh sound really sophisticated but actually it was just my wife and and myself in our pajamas at four o'clock <laughs> present this this thing um and uh yeah we got we won the project uh and we built the project and uh that actually let us start our whole path so we we hired then people who chatted in our office and we bought a fax machine and we had some telephones to ring <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, maybe we didn't really lie we were just uh chronologically uh uh a bit wrong yeah uh, in our <laughs> <laughs> that's funny you just ruined it for a lot of future people that are gonna try and pull that off clients are gonna be like let me see uh let me see your office how about you give me a tour <laughs> yeah no but uh i think it is uh it, it somehow taught us a lesson that it's not necessarily about you know trying to to find yourself and uh, trying to really what you're standing for, but also creating yourself, right? I think that growing up is a very active uh, thing to do. Um, and it's really about, you know, creating um, a, a persona that uh, in the beginning when you don't have anything to show because it's a bit of a catch-22, right? Like a client is looking for architects with experience, but how should you get the experience if you never had a project before? So um, it's a bit of a difficult, difficult uh, uh thing to achieve so yeah lying for us definitely helped <laughs> <laughs> and that's a lesson for uh you know potential clients as well is you know sometimes take a chance and it'll pay off exactly yeah. thank you very much chris uh thoroughly enjoyed this conversation hope you enjoyed the conversation as well i did Demetrius. thank you for having me Another huge thank you to Chris. You can find out more information about his and his wife's studio at P-R-E-C-H-T dot A-T. 
and definitely follow them on Instagram at Studio Prec. That's Studio P R E C H T. Amazing follow. They put up a ton of great work, so check them out as well. And thank you again for hanging out with us. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. And while you're there, please rate, like the show, and forward a link to your friend. Your support is the only way that the show grows. Don't forget to check out spacespodcast.com for more info. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcast. You know, I used to teach technology stuff at, at school, Demetrius, right? And yeah. you know that. And, and I don't know if you know this now, but they don't do that anymore. And so they're kind of pushing that off to the, the firms or, or your own intrinsic motivation to, to learn that stuff on your own. I mean, the half-life of information is so brief that anything you learn in school, I, I just have no hope that you're actually going to use that in my, in my firm. And even though we use Archicad all day long every day, that I don't even know if that shows up on our job description. Like, I just know I need to teach you from scratch. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.